Let's begin with another word of prayer. Oh, loving Father, we thank you so much that you have made us a part of the family of God. That, Lord, we can come together in your name and in your presence. And, Lord, we are counting on the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom today, guide our hearts and minds, and help us to know exactly what you would have us do, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Today our topic is Mark of the Beast Part 2, and I thought that we would start with a little bit of a review of what we learned in Mark of the Beast Part 1. You remember that we talked about that prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar had that dream of that metallic image that looked like a man, And that image had a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. And when Daniel revealed to Nebuchadnezzar that he was that head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar was pretty excited about that. But then he heard that that kingdom of his was going to give way to another, and that part he didn't like. And you'll remember how we talked about Nebuchadnezzar making a giant statue out of solid gold. And that was Nebuchadnezzar's way of saying that his kingdom was going to last forever. And if you go to Daniel chapter 3, you'll see how then Nebuchadnezzar had that statue set up on the plains of Dura, and he had all of the realm come to a dedication ceremony, and he told everybody that when they start playing the music, that everyone was to bow down and worship that statue. But he also threatened them. He said, if you don't, then you are going to be thrown into that fiery furnace. And you'll remember that there were three Hebrew boys by the name of Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah. You might remember them better by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were the ones that did not bow down when that music began to play. And I like this picture, don't you? I like this guy over here on the right. You know, he's kind of trying to drag one of them down and say, come on down, it's, it's okay, right? You know, the three Hebrew boys were not the only Israelites that were there. It was the whole nation of Israel that was taken captive, and yet they were the only ones that stood. All of the rest, under the pressure of Babylon, were bowing down to this golden image because they didn't want to face the consequences. And I can just imagine this guy saying something like, come on, man, just bend down and tie your shoes or something, right? I'm sure that God won't mind. And yet those three boys stood firm in their conviction that they were not going to bow down to idols like God had commanded them in His second commandment. And when those boys were standing and the king found out, he became very angry. And he said, look, we're going to give you another opportunity. We're going to play the music again, and if you bow down then we'll just go on as everything uh, is continuing and we'll just forget that this ever happened. But if you don't, you are going into the fiery furnace. And I just loved what those three boys said. Oh, King, we don't need to hear the music again. We have already made up our minds. It is firm within us. We serve the God of heaven and He is able to save us from your decree. 
But even if he doesn't, we are not going to bow down to your image. Well, of course, Nebuchadnezzar was furious. And he ordered that the furnace be heated up seven times hotter than normal. In fact, it was so hot that when those three men were thrown into that fire, that those who were throwing them in were burned and killed. But there they were, down in the middle of that fire. And Nebuchadnezzar looks down in there and he says, Hey, didn't we throw three down in there? How come I see four and one looks like the Son of God? You see, friends, God never promises us that He will take us out of the fire, but He promises to be with us in the midst. And as we look at this prophecy in Daniel chapter 3, this story of Nebuchadnezzar in that image, we see the issue of Daniel chapter 3 is all about worship. And in these last days, the central issue surrounding the mark of the beast is worship. Revelation chapter 13 uses this symbolism of this story in Daniel chapter 3 to describe an image that is going to be set up. And if we do not worship that image or take the mark of the beast, then there is going to be a threat once again of persecution. I'd like to look in Revelation chapter 13, once you take your Bibles and turn there, and let's look at this chapter. We've looked at it quite a bit already, but I want to go through it again, starting in verse 16. The Bible says in talking about this second beast, the false prophet, that he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. And then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And so here in this passage, we see that there are going to be two groups of people at the end of time, don't we? We see that there is one group of people that has the name of the beast written on their forehead, and then there is another group that is in quite a contrast to them, that they have the name of their father on their forehead. And I'd like you to notice something here in verse 17. Look at that again. It says, And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark. And then what's that next word? Or the name of the beast. Now, if your Bible's like mine, it's got a little mark by it. As I go down to the bottom, I can see that what that's telling me is that that word or was not in the original text. That was added by the translators. And so many translations say that in verse 17 there, that they have the mark, comma, the name of the beast. And I think that that is a more accurate rendition or translation of that because if you go to chapter 14 and you look at verse 11... And it's talking about those who take the mark of the beast. And it says, And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the what? The mark of his name. And so 
we see there that it's clearly talking about that mark being the name of the beast. And whoever receives that mark, the mark of his name, is going to have the wrath of God poured out on them. And so here in Revelation 13 and 14, we see two groups of people. One who has the name of the beast written on their forehead and the other who has the name of their father written on their forehead. And we also see that this is a mark of allegiance, right? One has their allegiance with the beast and the other has their allegiance with God. Now, I'd like you to look with me again in Revelation 14. This time, let's begin in verse 9 and go down to 11. It says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark, on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. And so here again, we see that the wicked are giving their allegiance to the beast. And then in contrast to that, look at verse 12. It says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. And so here we see another group in contrast to that first group who receive the seal of God and they are identified by those who keep the commandments of God and those who have the faith of Jesus. Now, I'd like you to notice that in Revelation chapter 7, it says in verse 2, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And I'd like you to notice there what this angel is doing. Notice that it says that he is ascending. Right? Normally, when we think of an angel, we think of one descending from heaven to earth. Right, But this angel is ascending from the earth. And notice what he says. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our gods on their forehead. And so here is this angel giving the seal of God on their foreheads and the bible says if you were to keep reading in revelation chapter 7 it says and i heard the number of them was 144,000 and so here we see the same group of people that we just read about in revelation chapter 14 and they uh, have to be sealed essentially before the destruction begins Right? Because that angel goes and tells the four that are holding back that destruction, hold on, we're not done yet, you've got to wait. And why do they have to wait? Because those who are being sealed are going to be those who are not affected by that destruction. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But here in Revelation chapter 7 and in Revelation 14, we find that there is another prominent mark in Revelation it's called the seal of the living God. And this seal contains the name of the Father and the mark of the beast contains the name of the beast. And uh, a lot of people want to know about this mark of the beast. 
But I would suggest to you that we really want to know about the seal of God. Because if you have the seal of God, then you're not going to get the mark of the beast, right? And so we want to make sure that we understand that seal of God. But we're going to take a look at both of these marks, and we will begin by asking a question. And that is, what is the seal of God? I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 8. That's going to be page 573 if you have one of those seminar Bibles. But if you find the book of Psalms, just go to the left through the book of Job, and right before Job is Esther. In Esther 8, verse 7 and 8. The Bible says, Then King Asuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hands on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring, for whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. And so here we see this story about King Asuerus who says to Esther and to her uncle Mordecai, use my name and write a decree, write a letter to the people and use my signet ring. And what that does is that makes it official. That makes it authentic that it came directly from the king and it shows that it's coming from his authority, right? And so here we see this seal that is being used and they're just taking some kind of a material that is impressionable whether it's wax or clay or something else and they put it on that decree and then they put that signet ring in there and that makes it official that shows that it came directly from the king and it's coming from his authority and it is authentic well we still use seals today don't we Here's a picture of a seal that you're probably very familiar with. This one is the seal of the President of the United States. Here's another seal. This is one taken from Columbus, Ohio. But I'd like you to notice the key components that there are in every seal. You will find that every seal has the name of the person on it. It has their title and their territory. And in this particular case, this is Michael B. Coleman, who is the mayor of the city of Columbus, Ohio. And so it has all three of those identifying marks. Donald Trump's seal would have his name, his title, which gives him the authority as president of the United States, and that's his territory, the United States, right? And that's what every seal would have on it. And seals are used to identify a legal document. Have you ever had to have something notarized? Right? It has the same thing. It has their notary seal. That, that's their job description. That's their title. It has their name. And then it has the area of responsibility that they have or their territory. And now there are some people that say, yeah, but when you're talking about the seal of God... Doesn't the New Testament say that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise? Well, that's very close, but that's not totally accurate. It's not that the Holy Spirit is the seal, but it is we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. In other words, He is the notary, not the stamp. 
And so a seal is what is used to make something official and to testify to the authenticity or the authority of that document. And so the question that we want to ask today is, what legal document of God's needs to be sealed? I'd like you to notice that in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, that we have the new covenant promise which says, I will put my laws in your mind and in your heart, that I will be your God and you will be my people. God has promised us that He is going to place His law within our hearts. Now, I'd like to show you something else. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 8. That's going to be page 792 in that seminar Bible. Isaiah chapter 8. And I'd like you to notice what it says in verse 16. Notice that the Bible says, bind up the testimony. What is the testimony? If you go back to Deuteronomy, you go back to Exodus, you'll see that that is the Ten Commandments. Uh, Moses was told to put the tablets into the Ark of the Testimony, right? And so we see that if we're going to bind up the testimony, we're going to bind up the Ten Commandments. And then it says, seal the law among my disciples. In other words, the Lord is saying that as the law is seen in His people, that it is a sign that they are authentic Christians, Right? Those people who are keeping the commandments of God are those who have the seal of God, those who are keeping His law, and that's what is that authority in their life, and they are showing that they are authentic in their claim to be a Christian. Because anyone can claim to be a Christian, right? But those who are keeping all of the commandments of God are those that are authentic in their faith in fact jesus said in john 14 verse 15 if you love me do what keep my commandments that's right it is evidence of that authenticity now some of you will remember in mark of the beast part one that we talked about these boxes that are in this picture here and they were called phylacteries and we talked about that a little bit uh, that came from deuteronomy chapter six why don't you turn there with me That's going to be page 209 in that seminar Bible, the fifth book of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and notice what it says there. Moses says, and these words, what words? The words that he had just given them, which were the Ten Commandments. He says, and these commandments, which I command you today, shall be in your heart, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And we talked about that, how the frontlets between your eyes is talking about your forehead, right? And so we see here that this is referring to the law of God. Seal the law among my disciples, we just read in Isaiah 8.16. And so here we learn that the words of God's law were to be in our heads and in our hearts. And you remember how we talked about the people of Israel. They took that literally, didn't they? 
and they actually had those phylactery boxes and they took little pieces of paper and they wrote the law in them and then they put them on their head and on their arm. And you'll remember how we talked about that's not really what God intended for them to do, was it? He wanted us to have the law in our minds and in our hearts, not a box on our head, right? And so I need to pose a question here. A seal was to contain the name of the person, their territory, and their title, right? So what title is it that gives God, because we're talking about the seal of God, right? What title is it that gives God His claim of authority? What gives God the full, undeniable right to be our God? Well, I'd like you to notice what it says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. This is God speaking then. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see who has what? Created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of His might and the strength of His power, no one is missing. I don't know about you, but I really like that verse. God calls the stars by name. And if God names all the stars, guess what? I'm pretty sure He knows your name too, right? His claim to authority as our God is that He knows our name because He is our Creator. That's God's own reason why we should worship Him. He says that's what makes Him different than any other God. God here claims authority as God by the virtue of the title of Creator. Notice what it says in Psalm 96, verse 4. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord, what? Made the heavens. Now, there are a lot of reasons that you and I could probably come up with on why we should worship God But God says Himself, the one reason that we should worship Him is because He made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He is our Creator. And notice what the people who are worshiping God in Revelation 4, verse 11 say. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they exist and were created. And so the Bible says that God has a seal and it has to do with His great legal document, the Ten Commandments. Now, we know that a seal is a sign of authenticity, right? And it has to have the name, the territory, and the title. And so I ask you a question. Where in the Bible does it give us place that gives us the name, the territory, and the title of the lawgiver. Well, I'll tell you, there's only one place, and it's in the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord, there's His title, made 
There's his uh, creatorship. And then it says he made the heavens and the earth. There's his territory, right? The sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, many people do not realize that this is the only commandment that tells us why we should worship God. In other words, if you take the fourth commandment out, you could worship any God that you want to. That chair could be your God. You could have any deity that you wanted to be your God, but the fourth commandment is the one that tells us who our God should be. Amen? He is the one true God. The fourth commandment, therefore, is God's seal because it testifies to the authenticity and the authority of the law of God. It contains His name, the Lord our God. It contains His title, our Creator. And it contains His territory, heaven and earth. And so the fourth commandment is God's seal because it testifies to the authenticity and the authority of the law of God. The seal of God stood, therefore, as a sign of those people who worship the true God. It always has and it always will. Notice what it says in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 20. And hallow, that just simply means keep holy, and hallow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. The Sabbath is to be a sign of authenticity, a sign of our allegiance to God, a sign that we are worshiping not the gods of man's opinion, but rather the God who created all things. It has always been a sign, and it always will be a sign of our allegiance to God. And so we have the seal of God, and we have the mark of the beast. Now, I would like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 9, and I want to talk some more about this mark that the Bible talks about. Ezekiel chapter 9, that's going to be page 961 in that seminar Bible. And I'd like you to notice what it says in verse 1 and 2. Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand, One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now I want to ask you a question. You've got this one that shows up with an inkhorn. What is an inkhorn? Well, that's what they used to write with in days gone by, right? Today we would say he showed up with a sharpie, right? This was someone who was ready to write. And notice what it says in verse 3. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple and he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side and the Lord said to him go through the midst of the city through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads 
of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within. And so here we see God telling this one with this writing instrument to go and put a mark on the foreheads of all of the people of God who were weeping over the abominations, the apostasy that was going on among God's people. Now friends, you and I, today, we should be weeping over the abominations, over the apostasy that is happening in the church today. Amen? And so here we see that there is a mark that is going out, and I ask you the question, who is it that is being marked? Is it the righteous or the unrighteous? It's the righteous, that's right. They are the ones who are being marked. Now notice what it says in verse 5. To the others, he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near any of on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. And so they began with the elders who were before the temple. And then he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. Now, I want to ask you a question here. What is it that has gotten God so furious that He is coming upon the children of Israel with this judgment? I mean, these are some pretty serious abominations, right? This is some pretty serious apostasy that is going on. Well, in order to determine what that was, we've got to go back one chapter to Ezekiel chapter 8 and notice what it says starting in verse 9. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. And so I went in and saw, and there every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all of the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. And they stood before them, seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel, and in their midst stood Jehazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, And a thick cloud of incense went up. And then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, Turn again, and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. And so he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. And Tammuz was this foreign god that they were worshiping. And then he says, and then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, and you will see greater abominations than these. And so he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east, and they were worshiping the sun towards the east. And so here we see that Ezekiel is shown by God this great apostasy, these abominations that are taking place among the people of God. And the first thing that we see is that they are worshiping idols. And then the second thing we see is that they are worshiping false gods. But then he says the worst of all, the biggest abomination, the greatest apostasy of all of these is that they are worshiping the sun. And then we see what is happening here in the house of God. And I'll just tell you that the temple was built facing the east. 
And so for you to worship God, you had to turn your back on the sun and you would face God and you would worship Him there. But notice what Ezekiel sees. He sees this group of 25 men with their backs to the temple and they're looking out the door and they are worshiping the sun. And God says, this is the worst abomination of all for you to be worshiping the sun god. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 9 says, He who turns his ear from the law, even his prayer is an abomination. So if you are worshiping the sun god, even your prayers are not being heard by God. If we are rebelling and just openly saying, Lord, uh, it doesn't matter to me what you say in your word or what you want us to do. We're just going to do our own thing. God is not going to hear your prayers. Because how can God help us if we have our backs turned to Him? Notice what it says in Ezekiel twenty-two twenty-six: Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and the unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean. Here God is saying, there are some things that are clean and there are some things that are unclean, but you can no longer differentiate between the two. You remember a couple of young priests by the name of Nadab and Abihu? They were the sons of Aaron, who was the high priest at that time. And God had told them that there was a certain fire that they were to use. It was a fire that God Himself had kindled. But they were drinking, and they let that fire go out. And so they decided in their own wisdom, in their own uh, weaved-in way of worshiping God, to start their own fire. And the Bible says that fire consumed them. But it was such an offense to God that they had not determined the difference between the holy and the unholy that God sent Moses to Aaron to tell him, don't weep for your sons. God did not want the people thinking that God was the one that had done injustice here, but it was those two young priests themselves who had not made a differentiation between that which is holy and that which is unholy. And friends, I have to tell you, the same thing is still happening today. Men and women, trusting in their own finite judgment, deciding for themselves what is important to God and what is not. God has set aside one day at creation that was holy. And the other six days, he says, are work days. They are regular days. There's only one. But God says that man doesn't have the right to decide for himself which day is holy and which one isn't. And he says these priests have stopped distinguishing what is holy and unholy. They have taken it into their own judgment, their own accounts, and decided rather than listening to the instructions that God has given. And the rest of the text says, and they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Now, we have talked about the seal of God, and now it's time for me to tell you what the mark of the beast is. Are you ready? 
the mark of the beast is the mark of the beast. I'm serious. The mark of the beast is the mark of the beast. Look, if I said to you, go get me Bob's keys, what would you say? Probably the first thing you would say is, who's Bob, right? Look, in order to determine what the mark of the beast is, first we had to determine who the beast is, right? And we've already done that, haven't we? We have already determined who the beast is. It is the Roman Catholic Church. And so if we want to know what the mark of the beast is, now all we got to do is simply go to the beast and ask him, what's your mark of authority? Right? We don't want to guess. We don't want to speculate. We want to know. And so let's let the beast tell us himself. Amen? All right. So what does the Roman Catholic Church claim as its sign of authority? We know God's sign of authority. It is the Sabbath day. It is the fourth commandment. What is the sign of the Roman Catholic Church's authority? This is from their doctrinal catechism. This is what they use to teach people of their faith. And notice the question that is posed here. How do you prove that the church has power to institute festivals? Apparently, the church was bringing things in and instituting these different festivals and the people saying, this isn't coming from the Bible, so by what authority are you doing these things? And notice what they say. Had she not such power, she could not have done that which in all modern religionists agree with her. She could not have substituted the observance of Sunday, the first day of the week, for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day of the week. A change for which there is no scriptural authority. Now, do you know what that's called? That's called circular reasoning. You know what they're saying? They're saying the fact that we change the law proves that we have the authority to do it. It's just circular reasoning. They haven't really proved anything, have they? But that's what they say. Faith of our fathers. Here is Cardinal James Givens. This is a Catholic document. It says... You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The Scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday. That's in their own documents that they say this. Notice what the Catholic record, September 1st, 1923, says. The church is above the Bible, and this transference of Sabbath observance from Saturday to Sunday is proof positive of that fact. They're saying, look, this is our mark of authority. The reason that we are the true church, as they claim to be, is evidenced by the fact that we change the very commandments of God. It's proof of the fact, they claim. They go on to say, deny the authority of the church, and you have no adequate or reasonable explanation or justification for the substitution of Sunday for Saturday. You see what they're saying here? They're saying if the Catholic Church does not have the authority to change the day, then why are we worshiping on Sunday? Right? Because it's only been brought into place by their authority. Protestantism of today says this, the observance of Sunday by the Protestants is an homage they pay in spite of themselves to the authority of the Catholic Church. This is by Father Enright. He wrote this in 1989.
The Bible says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But the Catholic Church says, no, keep the first day of the week, and the whole world bows in obedience. Now, friends, if you are still not convinced that Sunday is their mark of authority, then notice what it says in the Catholic record, September 1st, 1923. Sunday is our mark of authority. That's pretty clear, isn't it? The church is above the Bible, and this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. The Catholic Church, the beast of Revelation, says that their mark of authority is Sunday. Now, someone might say, well, what does it matter? What's the difference between one day and the next? And that sounds like it might be a good argument on the surface, doesn't it? And it sounds like that's okay until you realize that the day that you choose is a sign of your allegiance. Amen? God gave His sign of authority at the beginning of creation. And so it should not surprise us at all that the devil would just make a counterfeit day. And so this issue becomes a test of loyalty. Just like it was a test of loyalty over one tree in the Garden of Eden that didn't look any different than all of the others. God finishes human history in the same way that He began, giving us another chance at the same old test. Are we going to obey God just simply because He said to? And so the enforcement of Sunday observance is going to be the mark of the beast. Now, let me make a couple of things clear here. I want you to pay attention to what I'm saying. Nobody has the mark of the beast right now. Amen? Nobody has the mark of the beast right now. Why? Because as we studied the other night in Revelation chapter 13, it is not enforced until you have that unity of church and state. Right? Catholicism joining hands with America and pushing legislation on religious beliefs that conflict with the dictates of your conscience. It doesn't happen until you have that union of church and state just like it was in the old world. Right? The mark of the beast is not in place And it's not fully met until the United States makes that image to the beast and begins to legislate their beliefs. And so Protestant America is going to legislate. And some people have said, well, what are they going to legislate? Are they going to legislate the second commandment that says you should not bow down to idols? Are they going to legislate the third commandment that says you should not take the name of the Lord in vain? No, I think that the Bible is clearly pointing to the fact that they are going to try to legislate the fourth commandment. And we have it right here. Notice what it says in Revelation 13, 12. And he exercises all of the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And how? How is this going to cause everyone to worship the first beast? By worshiping the sign of his authority. 
And the Bible says that when you worship the beast, you're really worshiping who? The dragon, right? The dragon is the one who gave the beast his power, his throne, and great authority. And so the devil is using the Antichrist as his front man to gain the worship that he's been trying to get ever since his rebellion in heaven. And by getting mankind to do the same thing that he got Adam and Eve to do, and that is to take their trust off from God and to put their confidence into their own thinking, their own judgment, He is going to get them to worship Him rather than God. And you say, how is this going to happen? I'd like you to notice what Pat Robertson from the book The New World Order says on page 236. The next obligation that a citizen of God's world order owes is to himself. I don't know about you, but I don't agree with that. I think that the only obligation we have is to God Himself. Amen? But he goes on to say, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy is a command for the personal benefit of each citizen. And I wish he would have made that one statement, but he doesn't. He goes on to say this, higher civilizations rise when people can rest and draw inspiration from God. Laws in America that mandated a day of rest, he's talking about the old Sunday laws, have been nullified as a violation of the separation of church and state. It is not the duty of any particular group of people. It is not the duty of the church. It is the duty of the government, of its people, thus to proclaim a day as Sabbath, to be universally observed throughout the length and breadth of our land. What's he saying here? He's saying it's not your own responsibility to keep the Sabbath holy, but rather it's the responsibility of the government to make a law and force everybody to do it. He goes on to say, Sunday is the Lord's day. Well, we know that's not right either, don't we? We saw that the Sabbath is the Lord's day. But he says, if we as a nation would escape the doldrums of increased trouble as God's hands rest heavily upon His people, opposition to Sunday nationally declared must cease. In other words, he's saying that God has His hand on this nation because we have turned our back on God. And if we are going to get out from underneath of that, then what we need to do is we need to create a day that everybody is going to rest and everybody is going to worship on. And he goes on to say that that nationally declared day needs to happen. Right? We need to stop thinking that uh, Sunday is not a day that we need to come together. Sunday is the Lord's day, he says. Notice what it says in Time magazine, August 2nd, 2004, in an article called, And on the Seventh Day We Rested. It says, The idea that rest is a right has deep roots in our history. Blue laws were a gift as much as a duty, a command to relax and reflect. Now, most of you here probably know what the blue laws were, right? Those were laws that were written in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that said that all of the workshops, the stores, everything had to be closed on Sunday, no selling of liquor. I remember as a boy, all of the stores being closed, right? And they were called the blue laws because they were written on blue paper. But let me just say this. If someone were to say, well, I think that we should have a law that says everyone has to worship on Saturday, I'll just tell you I wouldn't support that either. 
Because the point is, or the problem is, when you have a union of church and state, what always happens? The church always controls the state, and persecution always follows. You can't tell someone what day they have to corporately worship God on, right? And the blue laws are a part of our history. Notice what the 1985 Roman Catholic Catechism says. This was uh, written and uh, under the control of Joseph Ratzinger. Recognize that name? He was the former Pope, Pope Benedict, the one who just stepped down before this Pope. He is responsible for the rewrite of their catechism. And notice what he says. The civil authorities should be urged to cooperate with the church in maintaining and strengthening this public worship of God and to support with their own authority. Did you catch what he's saying? He's saying the civil authorities are the ones that should enforce this, right? Let me read the whole thing to you. The civil authorities should be urged to cooperate with the church in maintaining and strengthening this public worship of God and to support with their own authority the regulations set down by who? By church pastors. In other words, what he's saying is the church should dictate what everyone should believe and the civil authorities should enforce it. He goes on to say, For it is only in this way that the faithful will understand why it is Sunday and not the Sabbath day that we now keep holy. Here he is saying that the common people are not going to get it unless we enforce it. That's what he's saying. Notice what it says in a view from a parish. This is by David Barney of the Trinity Episcopal Church. He says, In the face of these two considerations, the rights of minorities and the commandment to keep the Sabbath, what grounds have we for supporting Sunday closing laws? In other words, in the light that there are many minorities who do not worship on Saturday, what should we do? He goes on to say, in America, Sunday remains our common day of rest for one of any practical alternative. Here he's saying the reason that we should pick Sunday is because that's what the majority are doing. He goes on to say, since we have to choose one day in order for the whole community to enjoy it together, I see no alternative to Sunday. And how is this going to happen? Notice what it says in Revelation 13, verse 16. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now here's the question. How is this going to happen? Well, you remember, we've already talked about this. This is not going to be a literal mark, right? It is a spiritual mark. You either are, are keeping the commandments of God or you're keeping the commandments of men. But the real question then is, how is it going to be enforced? That's what we want to know, isn't it? And you know what my answer is? I don't know. I don't know how they're going to enforce it. And I don't want to paint myself into a corner where I'm only looking for one certain thing. But there is something that we know. And that it is going to be some sort of economic sanction. Right? You are not going to be able to buy or sell unless you have the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. But what does the Bible say? 
Revelation 13, verse 15 says, As many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Now, I know that there are some people that are going to hear this and just say, Well, now that I know that, I'll just wait until they make this legislation, and then I'll start following that. And then I'll go, Oh yeah, I remember what Pastor Rod said. Right? But I want to remind you of something. Where does that mark of the beast go? Either on the forehead or on the hand, right? It's not a literal mark, and so what that's telling us, if it's on our forehead, it's our seat of reason. It's our ability to think logically and to choose for ourselves. And I'll just tell you that there are some people in this world who are going to choose that they're going to follow the Pope. No matter what you say, no matter how you try to convince them, they're going to make that choice. But then there are going to be other people that they're not so sure about that. But they would also are sure they don't want to face the consequences of not taking the mark. And that's where your hand comes in, and that symbolically is talking about your actions, right? And so there are some people that are going to take that simply because they don't want the alternative, and that is that you can't buy or sell. But notice this. The seal of God is only on the forehead. It is only those who purposefully choose to serve God and take His mark of allegiance by resting on the Sabbath day, by worshiping on the Sabbath day corporately, and not taking the mark of the beast. They are the ones who are going to receive the seal of the living God. No one is going to be coerced or forced to take that mark. Amen? But those who receive the mark of the beast... They may believe it, they may not, right? They may just try to avoid the consequences and try to escape those things that are happening. And I personally believe the Bible is very clear that the deceptions are going to be so genuine, so real, that God says that if it possible, even the elect would be deceived. Now, you may say, well, now that I know that, As soon as I see that happening, I'm going to jump on the bandwagon. But friends, it doesn't work that way. You remember that there were, in Daniel chapter 3, there were many Israelites on the plains of Dura who were bowing down to that image even though they knew better, right? They were simply trying to avoid the consequences and don't think that you are going to be strong enough to take that stand then if you're not willing to take that stand now. Notice what Jesus said in John 16, verse 2. The time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. Can you imagine that? There is a time coming when people are going to think they're actually doing the work of God by trying to take you out. Now I have one more verse I'd like to share with you. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 12. It's going to be just a few pages back from when you were in Ezekiel. Jeremiah 12, page 883 of that seminar Bible. And notice what it says in verse 5. If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you. 
then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? Friends, what this is simply saying is that if you can't stand for the truth now in relative times of peace, how are you going to be able to stand when the whole world is against you? How are you going to be able to stand when the world is looking to take you out if you don't believe what they say you ought to believe? Friends, if you can't run with the footmen, how are you going to contend with horses? If we can't stand for God now, in that relative time of peace, then how are we going to take a stand for God when everyone is worshiping the beast? The central issue regarding the mark of the beast is worship. Will you worship according to the sign of God's allegiance? Or are you going to worship according to the mark of the beast's authority? I pray that Isaiah 8 will be fulfilled in all of us. Seal the law among my disciples. Seal it up, friends. Don't procrastinate. Make your decision today. Are you going to follow Jesus? Are you going to take a stand for the commandments of God? Do you see clearly from the teaching today that God has a seal and that it is in a fourth commandment? One summer day, Lewis was hot and thirsty. And so he went to the refrigerator and he opened it up and he saw a bottle of Coke, a big two-liter bottle. He said, all right. And he grabbed that bottle and he took the top off of it and he looked around to make sure no one was looking and took a great big swig, only to find out that it wasn't Coke. It was coffee. Cold coffee. It looked like Coke. It was in a Coke bottle. But friends, it was a deception. And my appeal to you today is there's a deception that is going on right now among God's people. And we're dealing with something more than coffee here. We're dealing with something more dangerous and something more deadly. And the consequences are eternal life. No wonder the Apostle Paul warned in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6-8, through 8, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Him that called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some that trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, let him be accursed. And why? Because this is a very serious matter. Your destiny hangs in the balance of the choices that you're going to make today. And knowing this, we cannot afford to neglect or to be indifferent. And so friends, I want to ask you today, do you see clearly from the Word of God what the deception is? And do you want to come out of those harlot daughter churches that are keeping the day that the mother church says to keep. If that's the desire of your heart, then I want to ask you to stand up right now and come up here with me and make a stand. Stand with me. Make a stand for Jesus. Come. If that's the desire of your heart. Friends, we don't know how much time we have. We know that time is getting short. But if you are a member of a Sunday-keeping church,
and you have seen the truth of the Word of God, come up here, ladies, please. All the way up here with me. Make that stand. If you can't make that stand, come on up, all the way. If you can't make that stand today in times of relative ease, then how are you going to make it when the whole world is against you? Come. God is calling you. It's time to make a stand. The choice is yours, ladies and gentlemen. What are you going to do? Are you going to take your stand with Jesus? Are you going to take a stand on the fourth commandment, which is the seal of God? Or are you in danger of taking the mark of the beast? Come. Come quickly. Come to Calvary. Do not be afraid. God is calling you. I want all of you that are here with me, come. Come here with me, please. Come close. Don't be afraid. I won't bite. Come and make that stand. Thank you. God bless you. Are there any others? Even just one more. Make that stand. Friends, we need to consider it. If we can't stand now, how are we going to stand later? God bless you. Come. Make that stand. Welcome. God bless you. God bless you. Come. God loves us so much. He wants everyone in this room to be saved. He doesn't want to leave it to chance. Friends, don't wait. Come now. I thank God for each and every one of you that have come up here to make that stand with me. We don't want to take it by chance, but we want to say, Lord, we're on your side. And we're going to remain on your side. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, loving Father, Lord, you see everyone here. You know every heart and every mind. And Lord, if there's anyone here that needs to make that decision, that has been afraid to come forward. Lord, we pray that You would continue to strive with them. Give them the strength and the courage to make that decision. It's hard to leave our churches. We understand that. We love our church family. But Lord, You tell us if father or mother or brother or sister or anyone else is more important than You, then we are not worthy of You. And Lord, we don't want to be in that place. But Lord, we want to take a stand for You. And I pray for everyone that has come up here with me and taken that stand. Lord, I ask You to bless them. I ask them You to give them the strength and the courage to go forward from this day forward, keeping all of the commandments of God, standing up and saying, I want to be among that remnant group of people that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Lord, we don't want to be a part of that deception that is going to be so clever and so far-reaching that the Bible says the whole world wondered after the beast. Oh Lord, give us the strength. Prepare us for those things that are coming upon the world. And help us to stand for You from now until You come. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.